You may be seated. Good morning, Hope Church. Welcome this morning. If this is your first time, so glad that you could be with us this morning. Welcome. Uh, my name is David. I'm one of the two pastors, uh, or at least teaching pastors here. Um, God has called us as a church to be a church of two languages, but one family, one hope in Jesus Christ. And so my brother Reuben here is our co-pastor, and he's going to be teaching in the next service. Um, so glad you could join us this morning. I'm going to set this up as a prop this morning. Set this Bible here. We'll figure out what that's about here later. I think that'll work. Hopefully I don't hit it. I've got a question for us this morning. Um, it's actually the first fill-in on your sheet, if you've got the little sheet and you're following along. Uh, what makes a good Christian? What makes a good Christian? If you ask that question of somebody in the late 1800s, they might have told you a new phrase that was coined during that time, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with those who do. That's a good Christian. But in seriousness, when you think about what makes a good Christian, what comes to mind? Is it, is it someone who regularly attends church? Um, is it just a good person? And, and maybe there is social things like, you know, they, they don't drink in excess, and, and they, they're generally a good person, and they don't party hard. Um, maybe you, th you think of someone who's involved in the church, someone who reads their Bible regularly. That's a good Christian, they, they know, they're able to talk about what's in the Bible. They know what's in the Bible. What makes a good Christian? Well, this morning, as we continue through the book of Philippians, we're entering chapter three, and there's a few things in here that I think will help to answer that question from God's perspective. Um, so let's, let's pray before we get into that. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter that you inspired Paul to write from prison in Rome to those in Philippi, that now we can read and be encouraged, God, to be challenged in our own faith. God, I pray as, as we open up your word that you would challenge our own ideas about things. Um, we consider being a good Christian a good thing, God. But if it's in our own idea of what that means and it's not your idea, then God, we wanna lay that before the cross as well. Teach us, Holy Spirit, by your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's turn to chapter three in the book of Philippians. As Paul continues... He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. He's been telling us to rejoice all along here. Um, it, he's pointed to his circumstances in prison and, and adversity that's there in Rome, and he's finding reasons throughout that. He's, he's already showed us reasons to rejoice, and he's looked at the, the future hope of that, that he has and, and that they in Philippi have, and he's, he's pointed out reasons to expect that they will rejoice in the future. And we've seen all that, but this is the first time where he, he really ties it together with the, the substance and reason that we have to rejoice is in the Lord. And he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. 
keep saying rejoice over and over again. He says, it's no trouble to me to keep saying this to you, and, it, and it's safe for you. What's that mean? It's safe for you that, that he keeps pointing us back to rejoicing in the Lord. It's not safe in the sense of physically safe or safe from physical harm. Um, when he was just talking about in, in the last chapter about uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus, these are men who are putting their lives on the line for, for Christ. And Epaphroditus, who, who nearly died for the cause of Christ, he's, he's not talking about physical safety here. No, he's talking about safety against what's gonna come up next, against false teaching, against lies and, and things that would detract us from the truth of the life that we have in Christ, the life that we have in the Lord. And so as a guard against that, he first says, rejoice in the Lord and keep saying that and keep looking at how we can rejoice in the Lord and that will be a guard against being, being guided off of what God has for you in your life. So that's an important aspect of what he's getting into. But then he starts to get into what, what this thing is that they would be safe against. He says in verse two, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What in the world is he talking about? Um, dogs, evildoers, mutilating the flesh. What does all that have to do with circumcision? Well, let's go back a little bit. There's some context here uh, that we need to understand. Let's go all the way back. Um, Garden of Eden, we sinned. And, and we fell from relationship with God. We we're dead in our sin. Even, even right there in the Garden of Eden, God had a plan that he was going to bring salvation to us. And then and we see God choosing this man named Abraham. Um, and he promised Abraham way back then uh, that through your offspring, I am going to bless the nations of the world. And, and we find out later, offspring was referring ultimately to Christ. There was an immediate sense of, of God making a nation out of, out of Abraham, but ultimately, God's promise at that point that, that God would, out of the line coming from Abraham, God would provide a savior for the world. And it says uh, that Abraham believed God and it was counted him, to him as righteousness. There at the beginning, God's plan of salvation given um, to Abraham, and, and Abraham believed, and in faith was counted as righteous. Well, then we see things unfold, and sure enough, Abraham's descendants grow and become uh, the people of Israel, and, and we see over and over again that in the history of Israel, as, as we see in the Old Testament, this first, more than half of this book is the Old Testament, this account of Israel, um, and, and they ne the, the, the people of Israel did not respond like Abraham did. Over and over again, they did not believe God. They did not trust him. They did not respond in confidence that yes, God would do what he said. Instead, they responded in fear and grumbling and complaint. And, and what we see is God, over the course of their history, then bringing in these laws. And these laws were a prescription for them then to be 
holy before a holy God. You do these things. It's this uh, rebellious people that just kept, uh, I don't even, you look at, at what God did among them and then just see their response. He's going, what are you doing? But then I look at my own life and I'm not, I'm, I can maybe see where that comes from. But, but over and over again, um, them not trusting God. And so God brings these laws and, and it's his prescription of holiness. And, and everything that God brings for them to do points forward to ultimately satisfying the promise that he had made to Abraham. And so when we see uh, God prescribing this system of priests that would be mediators between the people and God, that was pointing forward to the ultimate priest that would be Jesus Christ, who is our mediator between us and God. And, and as, as, he, um, as he gave them uh, the temple, and, and we see, and we see uh, Solomon's temple as it was built, and it was just filled with the glory of God, and, and that's pointing forward ultimately to a temple not made with human hands. And, and as, as God set King David over them as king, a benevolent king, David was a type of Christ, pointing forward to the ultimate king who would reign forever, Jesus Christ. Everything that he was doing was pointing forward to his promise to Abraham. Now that promise to Abraham at the beginning, God gave Abraham something that was a sign of his covenant with Abraham. That was circumcision. Before the law, before any of this with the people of, of Israel, with Abraham, he said the sign, of, the, the symbol of, of this covenant is circumcision. And every young male uh, in your line, as they turn eight years old, they need to be circumcised. Now we find out later, eight years old is, in our current science, we find out that's the perfect age for circumcision because levels of vitamin K and all this other stuff, it's, it's like blood clotting is gonna be, who knew, right? God knew, he made us. But that, that, was, that was a sign. And so throughout uh, the history of Israel then, they're continually just rebelling against God, rebelling against God, and uh, then we just see, you know, this kingdom that was under David and then Solomon ultimately splits into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And what God said would happen ultimately if they did not follow his ways, if they turned to other gods, that they would lose their place in the land. And sure enough, God brings in the Assyrians and that northern kingdom of Israel is just destroyed. And ultimately, the southern kingdom of Judah um, God brings in the Babylonians from the east and, and they're brought out of there into um, Babylon and exactly to the day, the Bible's careful to record it, they go into 70 years of exile, exactly as God said it would happen. And so they're captive in Babylon for that time and then God raises up Persia and Persia uh, conquers Babylon and, and it was the practice of the Persians to let those who are captive go back to their homeland, go figure. And so they return, and Ezra then leads the people of Israel to rebuild the temple, but it's not the temple that it was. And so you see this moment in their history where there was celebration, but there was mourning at the same time because it wasn't what it was in the day of Solomon. The glory of the Lord didn't come in and just consume and fill that temple. And then you had Nehemiah that came and, and they rebuilt the walls of the city. And at that time, you see them reopening the books of the law and saying, okay, now we're gonna take God seriously. 
He was serious about this whole thing. And so then for the next 450 years up to the time of Christ, they just become this people who are all about following the letter of the law. And so they build their own laws on top of that. Their own laws building on top and on top of that so that they make sure that, they, that the way that they observe the Sabbath and the, what they eat and, and everything that they do, that it is following God's laws. And it comes to be this thing about what they look like on the outside. And they're missing the whole point that was given them even before they entered the promised land. In Deuteronomy, when God's saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And in Deuteronomy 30, where he's saying that the circumcision, it's circumcision of the heart. Your heart needs to be right before God. And they missed that. They completely missed that. It was all about just all of this practice of the works of the code of the law. And it wasn't even the original law anymore. It was all of what they added on top of it. Now, I, I just recently started classes at seminary, and one of the professors was mentioning that even today, practicing Jews have continued to add on to those laws. And so, uh, when you're observing the Sabbath, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, and so they consider now turning on electricity to be work. So you can't flip a light switch. That's work, not on the Sabbath. So you better have your lights set how you want them on Friday night. Uh, you can't tear off toilet paper on the Sabbath. Can you imagine? Um, you better get all those things torn off ahead of time, and then, then your growing kids go in there, and you're, you're out of luck for Saturday. No, but this, this is what they had built up, is, and that's what Jesus was up against when they were saying, how could you heal on the Sabbath? This was not God's laws. This was their laws. They had added on top of what God had prescribed for them for holiness. They didn't get it. So then Christ comes on the scene. The promise, the ultimate promise that God made to Abraham, his, his means of salvation, and, and, and the fullness of that salvation now realized in Christ, and now through Christ, the Gentiles, those Gentiles that the Jews liked to call dogs, you know, dogs weren't pets back then. They were these scavengers that ran around. These Gentile dogs were putting their faith in Jesus and claiming now to worship the one true God. Wait, who were the people to worship the one true God? It was, it was the people of Israel. They knew how to do that. And so as the church began to grow, you had these Judaizers, which were missionaries of the old law, coming in and teaching these Christians, if you're gonna worship the one true God, you need to be circumcised. You need, uh, you need to observe the Sabbath in these ways. You, you need to do all of these things that they had built up. This is how you worship the one true God. This is, this is the way, and it was detrimental to the faith because what was the faith in Jesus Christ? It's not righteousness by works, it's righteousness through what we have in Christ, but they were trying to pull them back into the old way. And so you see, the book of Galatians is all about this issue. The Judaizers coming in and, and those Gentile churches in Galatia were, were buying into it. And legalism was coming up in the church and it was damaging to their faith. So then you come here and it is the Judaizers who are bringing 
another message to those in Philippi, and that's what he's speaking out against here. He says, look out for the dogs. He's calling them the dogs. Those who would call the Gentiles dogs. He's calling them dogs. Look out for the evildoers. It's not like they're trying to be evil, but in what they're doing to, to try to pull these Christians back to the law, it's evil. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This is a passionate passage from Paul that we lose in the translation from the Greek. Um, there's, there's a play on words here. He's, used, he's picked words that all start with the same letter uh, for dogs, for evildoers. Uh, and there's one word that, that is translated, those who mutilate the flesh. It's just, and it's the same prefix to all of it, belepte, 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 and it's this K. And, and I can't say all the words, I'm not Greek. But, but you get the sense from that passage that he's just taking whatever literary form that he has to just uh, bring passion behind what he's saying. And that word, for those who mutilate the flesh, he chooses a, a word that sounds like circumcision. He says, you're not the circumcision. See, the word for circumcision is peridome. And he says, no, you're the katatome, which means the cutters, those who mutilate the flesh. You see what he's doing here? He's, he's just driving into them passionately, similarly to the passion that we saw Christ interact with the Pharisees. They're leading people astray from the truth. And he says, for we, those who believe are the circumcision, not physically, but circumcision of the heart that God has accomplished in us through his Holy Spirit. It was the promise fulfilled that he had promised ultimately to Abraham. We are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. It's true worship. By the power of the Spirit of God working in us, we worship a God who is spirit. So now we are worshiping in spirit and truth. True worshipers. Those who believe are those who worship God. We don't need the law that they're trying to impose on the church to do that. And we glory in Christ Jesus. That is the source of our glory. Not all of this that you've built up as, a, as this sense of outward holiness. When we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. And so Paul continues. And now he's gonna build up. He's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna show if you're gonna talk about confidence in the flesh, he has every reason to be confident in the flesh. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. If you wanna go toe to toe on confidence in the flesh with Paul, he's got more. A self-made righteousness. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day. There you go, perfectly following uh, the prescribed um, circumcision that was given to Abraham, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He was in everything that was considered uh, righteous and good and of high esteem within their system, he was at the top. And what does he say about that? 
says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All that that he built up that was his life uh, and, and every pedigree and every action and every accomplishment that he had that, that stacked up this level of righteousness that few people in the world at that time could meet. He says, that's, that's all loss compared to what? Knowing Jesus Christ. So the first point, what makes a good Christian? It's knowing the risen Christ. Do you know him? Knowing Christ to Paul was worth more than all of that accomplishment in his life. His whole life work, everything he stood for. He says, knowing Christ is greater than that. Do you know Christ? How can you know Christ? Got this Bible prop here. Behind the words written in this book is the person of Jesus Christ. The risen Christ, not somebody who lived 2,000 years ago, but Jesus Christ who now is enthroned in heaven. God has given us his written word so that we can come to know him. Now be careful, there's nothing special about this binding or these pages. And when we consider what makes a good Christian, we go back to that question, we might be tempted to say, well, you know, I, I, how I treat my Bible and that I read my Bible, that makes me a good Christian. But that question, what makes a good Christian, I, I chose that question not because it's a Bible question. It, you don't see it phrased that way in the Bible. But culturally, for us, when we talk about what makes a good Christian, it, it brings up thoughts of actions, things that we do. And as we consider those actions, we put a value on them. This action is worth more than that action. And, and reading my Bible and going to church might be worth more than doing a good deed. Or you know, we, we start to put, you know, how, how often do you go to church? And those are actions we start putting value to. If I'm comparing value of actions under the title of good, what am I doing? I'm stacking up righteousness. I'm building a case of righteousness. And what did Paul do with his stack of righteousness that we can't compare to? He said, I count it all as loss compared to knowing Christ. And the righteousness that I have through faith in Jesus Christ, it's a righteousness from God, not a righteousness that I have built myself. So when we read the Bible, it's not to to somehow build up righteousness by checking the box that I read my Bible that morning. If you're doing that, re-examine why you're reading your Bible. I'm reading my Bible because this 
is the mechanism that God has given us, the vehicle that God has given us, the words in this book, to get to know him through the words of this. Let's not idolize this book. We can do that. We can get into a mode of, of, you know, I've put this on a pedestal, how great this book is. No, that'd be idolizing a book. I've transferred the value of the person that the book is about onto the book itself. The book is not where the value is at. The value is in knowing Christ. So when you open this book, what is the reason? It needs to be to get to know God. Can you get to know God without opening this book? (laughs) Well, it helps to come into church because we're gonna open this book and we're gonna talk about God. And, and, and it helps to go into a small group study where they're opening this book and, and getting to know God better. But if you really value knowing Jesus above all of the things in your life that, that you would count as part of who you are that you wanna put in front of people, if you caught all of that as lost compared to knowing Jesus, then I would expect that we start the work, it's not easy, but the work of diving into the words in this book to try to get to know our Savior, Jesus. Do you know him? Turn with me, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's look at, from this passage, how it is we get to know Christ. Starting in verse two, 2 Corinthians chapter four. It says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. It begins with the untampered word of God, the open statement of truth. That's where we start. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What are we what are we do? Where are we coming from? All of us are coming from a place where we have been blinded to the truth. We can't know Christ apart from God revealing Christ to us. And his mechanism, his method of revealing Christ is through his word. I believe also through his people. But to truly know Christ, it's through his word that Christ is revealed. For what we proclaim, in verse five, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says, knowing Jesus Christ is worth more than everything my life has meant.
the untampered word of God. So today, we don't face Judaizers. Judaizers are not coming into our church trying to teach us that we need to be circumcised. It's just not what we deal with today. But that same enemy who would blind the world, who, who also would, would try to detract us from the truth that is, in, that is found only in Jesus Christ, from the simplicity of our faith to trust him for our righteousness, he's still at work. So what is the threat against the church that we need to guard against? I've got some ideas about that. I'd love to hear your own, because it's good for us to be wary and to have our eyes open so that just like when Paul was saying, be, look, look out for, look out for, look out for, we can be saying to ourselves, look out for, and be aware of the danger. Today, I think we live in an era of skepticism. Came about with all the enlightenment of the last, well, I don't know, 500 years, <laughs> or a couple hundred years, really the last hundred years. But skepticism, what is skepticism doing? It's attacking this, the window to see God, God's mechanism to reveal God for who he is, Christ for who he is. Skepticism say, well, is it really true? How can we know that it's true? Did God really say that? Or is it only true in part and not in whole? And especially over the last 100 years and in the middle of the last century, um, there was a lot of attack on what we would say the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, that it is true in everything that it says and it's not possible for it to be untrue. But all of us in our great enlightenment, oh, we couldn't believe something like that. And so... The scripture has been under attack. And you see how that, that attack on scripture then attacks people's ability to come to know the living, reigning Jesus Christ. To see the thing that is most valuable. We also live in a time that more than any other time in the history of the world, we enjoy comforts. Technology has afforded us comforts like has never been known before. And they got these purple mattresses now that you can sleep on an egg and not crack the egg. I'm not sure what that's all about. <laughs> comforts. My mom used to say, there, there, little luxury. Don't cry. You'll become a necessity by and by. That's the world we live in. I, it's, it's comforts and comforts. And so, you know, Jesus, when he was talking about seed falling on different soil, the gospel falling into different situations in people's lives of how there was good soil, but then there was, there was rocky soil where roots could not go deep and people would not be able to stand against persecution. If, if, if the roots dig into my comforts, I fear that, that we have rocky soil within the United States. But even worse than that, in, in those analogies, he said there's soil that's just full of thorns and it's, it's the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches that are thorns that then take a new plant that, that is starting to grow in the truth of Jesus Christ and just choke it out. Boy, that is what we live in today. The cares of this world. We have, because of these luxuries of devices and everything else, we were able to schedule not just every hour of every day, but 15-minute intervals and half-an-hour intervals, and I'm going to meet you at this 45 and, and this 30, and 
our days are just full from one thing to the next. It didn't used to be that way. We've, we've by virtue of technology, brought ourselves into this frantic world that we live in. And, and in that world, it, it is the cares of this world. And the deceitfulness of riches to say, no, everything will be all better if you can just make it to this level. You feel that? I have felt that. I consider my own situation at any point in my life, there's always something that I'm looking that oh, when we get this done, things are gonna be better. The rat race that we live in. What was the guard again that Paul gave us? Against uh, the Judaizers, but against anything that would detract us from finding the truth and the value of what we have in Jesus Christ. He said, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. Make that your practice when you wake up in the morning. Make that your practice every day. You make that your practice every night, that I'm looking for those things that I can rejoice in the Lord in. And so we get to the, to the second point. What makes a good Christian is treasuring Christ. Do you treasure Christ above all else? Do you treasure knowing Christ above all else? In verse eight, back in chapter three, he says, indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So if instead of building up those things that I would consider my, my good works and my righteousness, what if I just build up this pile here of everything that I treasure? If my job, my house, what are those things that, that I value? And sometimes we can just find out what we value by what we spend money on. Money is life, congealed life into this dollar bill. What are those things that I spend my life on and building up? And those are things that I value. So if I start to put these things that either I'm working towards or that I have gained or I have accomplished and build that up, then I weigh in the scales. Where is my treasure? Is it in knowing Jesus Christ, standing behind the words of this book, or is it in these things? I tell you, in my own life, this is a serious balance to make sure that the scale weighs heavily because the true worth in this scale, not the worth in my head, but the true worth in this scale, this is nothing compared to Jesus Christ. But if I don't know him, and how I'm gonna feel the weight of his value and treasure him. Jesus gave two parables in Matthew chapter 13. One is about, he said, he said the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And man finds it and covers it up and he goes and he sells all of his belongings in order to purchase that field. See what he's getting at there? He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who, who buys uh, pearls and he finds this one pearl 
of great value, and he goes and sells all that he has so that he can buy that one pearl. You see what Jesus is getting at? Now, what if you're saying, okay, those are things that I treasure, but really, David, the things that I treasure, that's my family, my spouse, my kids, my own life. Are those things also to be weighed in the scale against knowing Jesus Christ? Turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Let's read Jesus' words. Luke chapter 14 and verse 26. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, he's speaking to the crowds. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus told us to, to love our family, to, to honor our parents. And now he's saying, unless, unless you hate, well, th- this, is, this is a scale. This is also weighing. It's a, compared to the value of knowing and following Jesus Christ. It is as if I hate those things that I treasure most. And I tell you that when our value is set right, that we value Jesus Christ above everything else, that that transforms us and it transforms the relationships in our life. It transforms my marriage because, because I am becoming like the person that I value more than anything else. And so as a husband to my wife, I become like Christ to my wife. To my kids, I become a better parent because I value God's direction in my life. Jesus, what he's telling me to do, I I value him over everything else, so I become a better parent. And my own life, as I get to know Jesus, then as Paul said earlier in this book, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain because I get to be with Jesus who is greater than my own life. And so I don't fear death anymore. And my own life and the weight of the scales against knowing Jesus is nothing. And it is a true balance of value when we're able to see Jesus for who he is. Continuing in verse nine, Paul says, he had just said in verse eight, count, I count, count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. I want the righteousness I get from here, not the righteousness that I might try to build up myself over here. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. I wanna know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection, that same power that resurrected Christ and now has him seated at the right hand of the Father now is at work in me as I draw close to him, as I get to know him, as as I'm in his word and the power of the Holy Spirit is revealing Christ through his word and working and convicting me in my life, that same power is at work within my life. I want 
to know and experience the power of his resurrection and may suffer in his sufferings. Even now, the work of Christ going forward to reach a lost world, I want to be a part of that with the living, risen Christ working in my life and the sufferings that I suffer are the sufferings of Christ becoming like him in his death. That's not going back to that time and actually physically going through the death. No, that's just as Christ's uh, human body was put to death, I consider my own flesh put to death. My, my sinful flesh is now, now buried and died with Christ and crucified with Christ so that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He's saying, the fullness of what I have in Christ which he doesn't have yet. The resurrection from the dead being that perfection, that ultimate salvation that God has in glory with Christ is, is what I'm, I'm searching for. And he says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this. See, that's the future hope. Or I'm already perfect. That expectation of yes, there will be a day when in Christ and everything I have in Christ will lead me to a place where I am perfect and holy as he has made me perfect and holy, not as I have built myself, but I press on to make it my own. Paul's saying, I want everything that there is to be had in Christ. Everything. I desire this more than anything the world has to offer. He can only do that because he knows Christ. I can't treasure a person I don't know. How important is it for us to pick up this book? Not to earn brownie points because I read my Bible that morning, but to get to know the living God, the living King of Kings, Jesus Christ, who is behind the words of this book. What was Paul's motivation? It's there at the end of verse 12. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There's our motivation to stay the course, our motivation to continue on when things are not easy and and putting myself into the same place of Christ also places myself right at the center of what the criticism of this world is, is just pressing against and the ridicule of this world is pressing against Christ, and I'm putting myself right there with him. And as I'm enduring that, in whatever circumstance, whether it's at work or at school, or maybe even within your own family, I know that Jesus Christ knows me. Church, I can tell you that the living King of Kings knows me. And he has made me his own. That's our motivation. Let that be source of rejoicing. That right there, no matter what circumstance, if I can't find a reason to rejoice in the circumstance, Paul is so good at just taking this thing that's just so adverse to what he's trying to accomplish and still finding a reason to rejoice in Christ. And if I can't find that reason here, this is a reason that will never change. Jesus Christ has made me his own. A personal relationship with the King of kings, the Lord of lords. 
That's reason to rejoice. And so I say, church, and I don't grow tired of saying it, rejoice in the Lord. It is safe for you to rejoice in the Lord. Let's worship our Lord and Savior. Father, we have every reason to sing hallelujah. Because God, as we do, come near to you and we do behold the glory, the face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we come to know you truly as you are, not as some image that we've learned from other people or from stories or things uh, given to us around us or how the world sees you, God, but we see you for how you are. Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, commander of all commanders, above every name, God, there's a seriousness when we come near you, God. There's a fearfulness when we come near you because, God, you transform our lives in your presence, God. We become new. And, God, sometimes that's terrifying, but it's good. And it's greater than anything else, God. So we sing hallelujah to you, Lord Jesus, because you are worth more than anything else. We love you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your holy, mighty, precious name that we are privileged to pray. Amen.